as speech pathologists, we, we do really get it. We understand the importance of communication and, and social connections. And it's important to learn that how one way of treating or, or working with a, a client isn't necessarily going to be what works for another client in a different state or from a different tribe. If we've got assessment findings that are robust, then we don't have to make any presumptions. And I strongly believe in the value and worth of what we do and the difference we make. Hello, and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature a conversation about an area or topic related to all things speech pathology. Let's hear what this week's contributors have to say. It's Annika, and welcome to this week's episode of Speak Up. I am so excited to welcome Dr. Sarah Verdon to the podcast this week. Sarah is Head of Speech Pathology at Charles Sturt University and has worked extensively in the area of paediatric speech, language, and literacy development in culturally and linguistically diverse contexts. With more and more multilingual children on my caseload, I have really been looking forward to this chat. Welcome, and thanks for giving up some of your precious time to be here today, Sarah. Well, thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. Now, I am so keen to jump onto this topic of uh, working with children that are multilingual. But before that, I just wanted to say I did read your recent article about the national shortage of speech pathologists, and I just loved it, to be honest. I thought it just beautifully articulated what I think many of us have known anecdotally for some time, and it was just nice to see it in writing um, and with some research behind it. It was wonderful. Um, I obviously look at it through a metro lens because I do work in a metropolitan area. Um, I know you work regionally and I would just love to know what speech pathology services in the paediatric space look like um, on the Victorian and New South Wales border where you work. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I was actually blown away by the response to that article. I definitely wrote it from my experience and more recently my experience in having a private practice um, here in rural Australia. Um, But yeah, it really resonated with even people in the city. So I thought that was so fascinating to hear all the response that I uh, got to that article. We are experiencing a huge shortage of speech pathologists uh, here on the border and in regional Australia more broadly. And um, ironically, we are actually producing more speech pathologists than ever before, more programs, um, more universities on board. And when that first happened, I thought, oh, goodness, how's everyone going to find a job with all of these programs? And then, of course, we had the NDIS come in, and that has just changed the face of speech pathology um, completely and now we just have such a huge shortage and in a way that's a really good thing because it tells us that more people have funding to seek the intervention that they need so that's really encouraging but as a result it's kind of highlighted just how important speech pathologists are and how much we're needed and that there's just not enough of us to go around and that it actually isn't just a rural thing but it's happening all over the place. So being head of speech here at CSU, I get contacted all the time from uh, private practices but also um, other services as well, public services, saying we don't get any applications to our um, job advertisements, uh, what's going on. And the fact is that most of our graduates already have a job before they graduate. Somebody either from their placement or someone that they know has tapped them on the shoulder well before they graduate and offered them a job. And so even as we release a new cohort of graduates each year, it's not actually um, sort of filling the hole that we need for our local speeches. So 
it's a great thing for our graduates. They'll never be short of a job, but it is a real issue in trying to meet the needs of these huge waiting lists. So some regional centres don't have anyone at all. Um, and so families are travelling a lot. We have an on-campus clinic here at CSU and we have families travelling over two hours to come and see us here because they at least know they can get a spot with us and that's kind of better than nothing to them. So I think there's a lot um, to be done. I think we kind of need to think more innovatively about how we address this. So um, if we can look more at tier one and tier two approaches to trying to... Um, so, for example, one of the little schools I work at, I think uh, six out of the eight children in their kindergarten class are on my caseload. So perhaps getting smarter about, well, why don't we do whole class stuff rather than one on one, but also trying to marry that with the funding model. So if the children are individually funded through NDIS, trying to make sure that that aligns with their funding can be a little bit tricky as well. So, yeah, but I think I think if we can do um some more innovative approaches then we might be able to um address that but ultimately i think it just demonstrates how important speech pathologists are and how much we are needed we know how prevalent speech and language disorders are in children and how much support uh, they need so in a way i do think it's a good thing that people are seeking these services but i do think that um yeah, unfortunately, there's still that huge need there. I think you're right too. There's long-term solutions to this that are great but not going to help in the short term. So being creative and innovative about some of these short-term solutions, as you say, by looking at our service delivery. Uh, you had some great ideas in your article too, um, looking at other service providers, providing consultation, um, providing education to service providers, etc., cetera, um, and being a bit more creative and willing to do that. Um, I thought some of those ideas you had were really great and we really need to be embracing them as best we can. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I've been looking at in my newest research project is um, because I've noticed a little bit on my caseload that a lot of my fundings are for my referrals are for school, school age children and not so much in those early years. And I don't know if this is a rural phenomenon or if it's happening more broadly, but that early identification is still um, not always happening. And so it's got me thinking about how do we create that awareness within the community amongst what I call first responders. So speech pathologists are not first responders for speech and language needs. Kids that end up with us are kids who have already been flagged by someone, given a referral or given a phone number of a speech pathologist, they've made it through the waiting list and they're sitting in front of us. Those kids are already covered, but it's about all of those other kids that don't have that early identification that are missing out on the services. And that's got me thinking about, as you say, being a little bit more creative and thinking how important it is that we do that community level education about uh, to these first responders. So I'm thinking parents, of course, but also early childhood educators and maternal child health nurses who see children for free in the community for those childhood checkpoints. Um, these are community touch points who can be referral agents catching children a lot earlier um, than what they currently are. And so the project that I'm doing at the moment, um, it actually looked at some of these first responders and investigated their understanding of speech and language um, disorders. And we asked them if they'd ever worked with a child who had had a speech and language disorder and the majority of them said yes and then we asked them to actually define what they meant by that so we asked them if they could define what a speech disorder was or a language disorder and of course these are terms that are very commonly used 
in speech pathology, but actually people in the broader community don't really know what they are. And that's what I kind of wanted to tap into. If these are the people who are responsible for identifying these needs, do they actually know what they are? And so what we found with the results in defining what a speech disorder was, we largely got the answer to what we as speech pathologists would define as a language disorder. And when we asked them what a language disorder was, this was really surprising to me, we frequently got the answer that it was kids who don't speak English. And so, yeah. And so I guess that segues really well into um, what I'm going to be talking about for the rest of the podcast, but just made me realize how much these myths around multilingualism still pervade. And so a language disorder was largely understood to be a child that didn't understand English or wasn't competent in English. Mm, we have a lot of work to do, don't we? <laughs> that's really interesting. Absolutely fascinating. It didn't surprise me about the speech disorder. Right? That didn't surprise me. But yeah, that's really, really interesting. And you're right. Um, we do need to be skilling people up on that. Um, absolutely. But it's time and it's persistence and it's actually making a decision to do it, isn't it? Because we're all really busy and it's having to really go out of our um usual day-to-day work to go above and beyond to start linking in and actually skilling some of these people up. Absolutely. And I think from my perspective as a researcher, it's about translating our findings to the right people. So these findings don't need to go to speech pathologists as we kind of know what speech and language disorders are, but it does need to go to these other community touch points who aren't necessarily reading our journal articles or coming to our conferences. So we need to find more innovative, different ways to get that message out there. And that's one reason why I started my own podcast, the Talking Children podcast, which is specifically aimed towards parents and early childhood professionals like educators um, to try and break down some of these complex that you and I use every day as speech pathologists but that the wider community largely know nothing about um, for that reason. So I'll give you an example of something that reinforced that just last week I was working with a family, a a family from a refugee background and um, they spoke Hindi and so I we wanted to do a language profile on the child to see what languages they spoke and where and the family said oh no we only speak English with him and so I asked them why and uh, the child was the third in the family and the oldest child had been diagnosed with autism and their pediatrician had told them that you couldn't speak your home language with him because he had autism and so they only spoke English with their child and then every subsequent child only spoke English And that's just such a tragedy because when a child already has significant language issues, when you cut off their home language, you're cutting off a language resource and it's actually doing far more damage than good because we refer to um, the home language as the heart language. So that's the language of parenting and love and those early memories and not the technical terms that they learn in English in school or in their workplace, but those the contextual words that you learn in those first few formative years of your life in your home language. And if you cut that off, you're cutting off so many things. You're cutting off perhaps the ability to speak to grandparents who only speak the home language. You're cutting off the ability to participate in cultural activities. So then that impacts on identity and self-esteem. There are so many negative impacts to cutting off this resource in a child who already has limited linguistic resources and then forcing them to speak a language that is not their parents' dominant language. Mm. So, yeah, that was it was really disheartening to hear. I think as a speech pathology profession, we've moved past that. I think Absolutely. we are very aware of the fact that it's good to be multilingual, but 
even among doctors and paediatricians, as well as these other first responders, these myths still really pervade that children need to speak English and focus on English. Sarah, I still hear that on a regular basis. The school that I work in has many multilingual children um, that attend the school. And uh, yes, I totally agree. I think in speech pathology, we've moved so far away from that, giving that advice. That is so old fashioned. And I think we're much more forward thinking. But The number of times I hear that and the number of conversations that I have around exactly what you've said is it's kind of mind blowing, actually. And I'm so glad you brought it up Um, because I think it is important for us to remember that it's not okay to say that. (laughs) It's not okay. Um, But I don't think speech is a saying it. I think it is coming from other professionals. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah. And I think so then, as you mentioned earlier, we have work to do around educating our colleagues uh, in other professions but also then we have some work to do around parental education as well and so a big part of our work with this family is for us to say actually it's okay Okay, that you speak your home language and actually it's really good if you do and it's okay and you can see how relieved they are when you say that too they're so relieved and so thankful that you give them permission because they're obviously trying to do the best for their child and following advice that they believe is the right thing to do and yeah you just see a whole level of relief um when they hear that i'm so glad we've jumped onto multilingualism because that's what we are chatting about today and i know that you are such a guru in this area and it is really becoming something more and more i think um that pediatric speech pathologists are dealing with um so what is some of the current research what is it suggesting in regards to assessment of multilingual children because the assessment process is slightly different Yeah, sure. So this is something that um, my research team and I have been working on a lot in recent years. Um, So the best research tells us that children should be assessed in all of the languages that they speak. And the reason for this is because, well, first of all, if a speech or language disorder is present, then it will be present in all of the languages that a child speaks. If it's only present in one language, then that's probably more of an indication of a lack of exposure in that language than it is of a language disorder. So, for example, if I was to sit you down right now and do a formal language assessment of you in Turkish, you would most likely fail that test. I would say yes. (laughs) (laughs) But that does not tell me anything at all about your capacity as a language learner or a language user. It only tells me that you don't speak Turkish. And that is the exact same thing that we're doing when we assess multilingual children in English. We are finding out nothing about their competency as a language user. We are only finding about their competency as an English speaker. And so we need to be really aware of that when we're making assessment plans. And I know that this is an extremely daunting area for speech pathologists because it's scary to go outside of, um, you know, the very well-known protocols that we've been trained in and that way we are learning in. And so one thing that we're trying to do at university level is to not just train speechy students in that monolingual mindset, but to actually train them to work with multilingual children from the beginning, but also to have confidence in our ability um, to try and identify language, speech and language disorders in these children. And so another thing about Australian children is that they're often sequential multilinguals. And what I mean by that is they learn their home language first and then they learn English when they go out into the community, either into their early childhood setting or into their school setting. And so again, we would expect their linguistic profile to show weaker English if they've had, say, three or four less years exposure to English than their first language. So again, if you only assess them in English, they're going to come up quite poorly on that test. And so what we need to do is to 
comprehensively assess every language the child speaks using robust and valid assessment tools. Mm. And that's where we get that's where we get scared, Sarah. This is where my my scared fear kicks in. So how do we do that? Absolutely. <laughs> And so the the short answer is that we can't always do that because the tools don't always exist. Mm. Um, You know, for some language pairs like English and Spanish or English and Vietnamese, we're fortunate enough to have um, assessment tools that have been developed in those languages. And so a recent um, research project that I've been working on with Sharon McLeod um, as part of an ARC discovery grant is looking at Vietnamese and English. And we're very fortunate to have multilingual colleagues who speak Vietnamese and the tools that are in Vietnamese. And so it's very easy to provide a high quality model of what multilingual assessment and intervention should look like because you have all of that. But the average speechy in their office doesn't have all of that. So then what do we actually do? And so, um, and then on top of that, even if you do have the tests, you can't compare the children to the normative data because often the tests are developed on monolingual Vietnamese speakers and monolingual English speakers, but not multilingual children. And because there's just so much heterogeneity in multilingual populations in terms of the age that they learn languages and the context and who they speak them with and what dialect they speak, normative data virtually is just never going to exist for multilingual populations because there's not really any such thing as normal. So um, we have to be a little bit inventive as to how we do assessment. And so going back to um, what I said before about whether or not we're assessing language competence or whether we're assessing exposure, that is really the key question. And so the very first step that I have for undertaking an assessment is that we need to do a comprehensive linguistic profile. We need to know what languages the child speaks before we can assess their language. There's some wonderful free online versions of these that are available, Um, the Alberta language scales, and I can provide some links to those, you can put them in the show notes. Um, And basically what they do is they look very comprehensively at what language the children speak, when, where, whom, from what age they started learning them so that you can start to get a picture. So if you look at the child in front of you and you see, okay, they've spoken English since birth, but they also speak Hindi, great. I know that they're probably going to have fairly good English because they've always spoken it since birth. Perhaps they've been in daycare five days a week since they were six months old and they've got a pretty good grasp of English as opposed to the child that has been at home with mum until age of five and now they're starting kindergarten very first day of kindergarten is their first day of English exposure so this information gives us a lot of information about what we can expect to see in their assessment results before we actually even begin anything and they help us to plan um, what we might be seeing so we would really expect um, in a sequential language learner because they haven't learned their languages at the same amount of time they haven't had the same amount of exposure Whereas you might get a little bit more of an even spread between a simultaneous um, bilingual who's learned both their languages from birth. So that's kind of the first thing is just understanding context. The second recommendation that I would make for assessment is to listen to parent report and engage in really thorough discussion. And this is so important for culturally responsive and family-centred practice because parents, as we know, are the experts of their children. They're also experts in the language combination. So they themselves often speak the same language combination as the children, same dialect, same language. And also there might be siblings in the family who can provide an indication. So these siblings learned the exact same language combination at the same time and they looked very different. So that kind of parent report can start to tell us 
you know, is this someone who's just been referred because their teacher thinks that they've got an issue because they don't speak English very well? Or is this someone that the parent's really concerned about because their older two siblings did fine with being bilingual, but this child's not doing very well with being bilingual? And so that parent report can give a huge indication as to what we're looking at. The next thing that I would use, so number three, is thinking about dynamic assessment. And so this again, when we do a test, as I mentioned before, if I did that Turkish assessment on you, that is testing your exposure to Turkish. So we want, the thing about um, dynamic assessment is that we have to teach before we test. So what we are looking at is the brain's ability to learn and use language in dynamic assessment, regardless of what that language is. Mm -hmm. That's what we want to know as speech pathologists. Is that part of the brain impaired or not? Or is it just because they haven't heard much English? So which one is it? That's what we're trying to figure out. And so through dynamic assessment, we have the opportunity to actually try to teach the child some concepts and see if they can learn them. And that way we can make a um, decision about whether or not the reason the child doesn't know this concept is because they've just never heard it before mm. or they don't know it even after intensive instruction and practice, they still can't get it. They've probably got a language disorder or a speech disorder. So that's why I love dynamic assessment. It can be made culturally responsive and totally relevant to the individual child that you've got in front of you. And you don't need any formal assessment tool to really do it. Then the fourth thing I would say, <laughs> stop me if this is too many. <laughs> no, no, keep going. I'm, like, I'm taking notes because I'm learning. <laughs> the fourth thing I would say is um, comparing to contextually relevant models. And this is something that we've done a lot in our Viet speech study that I mentioned before um, with Sharon McLeod is we took, we actually assessed parents, grandparents, siblings, and the target child and compared their productions. So this was a speech study, not a language study. We compared their productions to their ambient language environment. So even if the child came up as pronouncing a sound at not as we'd expect, if that was the same way that their parent or their sibling or their grandparent produced the sound, then we could deduce that that was likely a culturally relevant production of the sound and that that's how they'd learned it from their language environment, not indicative of a speech sound disorder. Um, and so that's often been called parental contrastive analysis, but you can use it with siblings and all sorts of other um, people as well. So that's a really interesting way to see if this is a culturally pr appropriate production or is this something that's very strange even within that child's um, typical environment? Mm, that's so interesting that's because so interesting. I think in my mind when I'm working with a multilingual child, I'm looking at this language area and to think of it a bit more broadly in terms of speech sound, that's really fascinating and not something I'd be honest to say that I've actually considered. So that's really great that some research is happening in that to help us consider that too. Um, because normally it's just language that I'm looking at and not necessarily their speech production, which is really fascinating. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, we often notice uh, about multilingual speakers, of course, they have an accent, but then sometimes it can be diff difficult to differentiate between, oh, is this an accent thing or is this actually a speech sound disorder? So this, these data have been really interesting to analyse and really fascinating. It's been quite enjoyable to sort of pick it apart at that phoneme level and actually have a look at what's going on. So, we, so that's awesome things that we need to start really considering in terms of our assessment. What about intervention? Is there anything in regards to intervention that we should be considering above and beyond what we would ordinarily do with a monolingual speaker? 
Yeah, so this is where I would again bring back in the dynamic assessment. So the cool part about dynamic assessment is that it's actually a form of intervention and it can be really tailored to whatever goal that you're working on. So say, for example, um, you've done your assessment and the other thing I was going to say in assessment is that you can use the test that you've got informally. So you could still use a self or a wrapped to identify some targets if your language profile shows you that the child's had sufficient exposure to English. You just wouldn't score them against the normative data, but it might still help you to identify areas that they might need to build on. So in terms of intervention, you've identified your targets, you've realised, okay, these are issues across both language. Um, what do we need to work on? And so, for example, if you were doing an early intervention session with a child who needed to work on vocabulary and you wanted to work on the names of animals, for example, you might have a whole heap of animal toys and do it in a play session um, with the parent with you as well. And you start going through and labelling the names of the animals, for example, and see if they could label them in English and then get the parent to ask if they could label them in the home language and find out which ones they can and can't do. And once you come up for uh, with some examples of ones that they didn't know the names to, you could then do some interventions. So you start doing some play um, around these animals, doing lots and lots of repetition of the labels, teaching them the vocabulary names. And then once you've done sufficient intervention um, and sufficient repetitions that you think the child should have learned that word, then you test again. But you can test in both languages. So you can get the child to say the name of the animal or the colour or the object or whatever it is that's the focus of your intervention in English and get the parent to ask for that name in the home language. So you're doing bilingual intervention, but not only that, you're modelling to the parent how to do this at home. And so you should always get parents to provide intervention in their strongest language. So if a parent isn't a strong speaker of English, then they're probably not the best person to be providing an English model for intervention. And so as the speech pathologist, you can be the English person uh, and then the parent can be the home language person, but you're working on the same targets. So that's quite easy for vocabulary. It's a little bit more complex when you're looking at things like grammatical features because grammatical markers can vary across different languages. So it certainly depends on what target you're using but definitely using yourself as the model involving the parent during the session so that they know how to implement that therapy at home and that the child's getting the therapy across both languages would be my advice. And what about interpreters? So if we have mum for instance or dad who is not a good speaker of English um, you would obviously need an interpreter in that intervention session wouldn't you? Absolutely yes. So I would always recommend having an interpreter present um, ideally in person but we also have um, great access to phone interpreters as well. So I think from um, an equity and access point of view even if the parent can speak some English it may not be their preferred or strongest language. So having that interpreter there just means that they'll be able to express themselves in a way that they may not have been able to get across if they were just trying to use English and it wasn't perhaps their most confident language. Mm, absolutely. Now, I know you've got a few things in the pipeline in regards to resources that people might be able to access to get more information in this area. What's what's happening and where can people go? Sure. So I have... Um, as I mentioned earlier, my podcast, which has an episode especially on sort of debunking myths around multilingualism and what's typical for multilingual development. So that might be of interest. 
Of course, there's the Multilingual Children's Speech website, which is developed um, by Sharon McLeod and it's hosted by Charles Sturt University. So if you just Google Multilingual Children's Speech, that will come up. And it has so much language, uh, information about languages from all over the world. It has assessment tools and resources and things on there. So that's just a, a wealth of resources for multilingualism. Um, and also, I am developing work in progress on my website, um, what I call the ultimate free resource guide for speech pathologists. And I basically, every time I come across a great resource that's free, I pop it onto that list and then speeches can access it. And a lot of the resources on that list are to do with multilingualism, mostly because it's just a pet love of mine. So I tend to <laughs> come across a lot of things. So things like um, links to how to do a a complete language profile and things like that you'll find on that list for free. So it's svp-slp.com. Beautiful. And I do believe there's a self-paced learning package in the pipeline also. <laughs> yes, a couple of things for SPA coming up. So the first one is the self-paced learning PD on multilingual assessment and intervention, which will really expand on everything that we've talked about today. And then the second thing is that I'm working with a working party on developing the new practice guidelines for working in a culturally and linguistically diverse society. And we're really excited about those coming out uh, in the new future. So watch this space on those. Absolutely. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time, Sarah. I have actually been taking notes myself because I'm learning so much of, from you as, as we're chatting today. I really feel like we could keep going, but unfortunately we're going to have to say goodbye. But I've so enjoyed chatting with you um, and really appreciate your time because I know you are such a busy, busy person. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been so wonderful to be on the podcast and I'm an avid listener. So thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. And thanks so much for tuning in and supporting the podcast. We will be back with another episode next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Remember to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your colleagues. Thank you for listening and bye for now.